All right, folks, we got a murder on our hands. In case you started daydreaming during the last one, let me catch you up to speed. Uh, our, our main character, who is apparently nameless, is Ruman with his bud he met at a library uh, in a scary mansion, although that little plot point hasn't really factored into anything yet. Anyway, they enjoy uh, long walks at night in Paris, and um, during one of these walks, Dupine, uh, the other main character, um, showed that he can basically um, read, not really read people's thoughts, but um, piece together what someone is thinking based on following a train of thought. He's really good at it. He's our original Sherlock Holmes, I believe. And anyway, there was a murder of a one Espanaye and her daughter. Uh, some screams in the house. A crowd came in, found everything strewn about, and the daughter's body was stuffed up a chimney. The mother was almost decapitated outside and i think the one important thing from all the testimonies that we heard is that they had just um cashed out four thousand francs from the bank and i and they found the 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 chest in the house empty so that sounds like the motive but maybe that's what poe wants us to think and maybe it's something different uh also we talked a lot about board games and card games last time and uh, how important analysis is in in them, and apparently in cracking this case. And with that, let's keep going. The evening edition of the paper stated that the greatest excitement still continued in the Quartier Saint Roque that the premises in question had been carefully researched and fresh, fresh examinations of witnesses instituted, but all to no purpose. A postscript, however, mentioned that Adolphe Le Bon had been arrested and imprisoned. Okay, we got our first suspect, I guess. Although nothing appeared to incriminate him beyond the facts already detailed. Uh, did they mention Adolphe Le Bon? I don't remember him being mentioned. Anyway, let's just keep going. Oh no, he was the the bank dude who um, walked them home with the money. I just I just looked it back up. Okay, uh, where were we? Dupin seemed singularly interested in the progress of this affair. At least so I judged from his manner, for he made no comments. It was only after the announcement that Le Bon had been imprisoned that he asked my opinion respecting the murders. I could merely agree with all Paris in considering them an insoluble mystery. I saw no means by which it would be possible to trace the murderer. We must not judge of the means, said Dupin, by this shell of an examination. The... The Parisian police, so much extolled for acumen, are cunning, but no more. There is no method in their proceedings, beyond the method of the moment. They make a vast parade of measures, but not unfrequently these are so ill-adapted to the objects proposed as to put in mind of Monsieur Jourdain's calling for his 
robe de chamber pour meu entendre la musique. Sorry, guys. More French. Uh, but basically, Dupin is not impressed with this investigation. The results attained by them are not unfrequently surprising, but for the most part are brought about by simple diligence and activity. When these qualities are unavailing, their schemes fail. Uh, Vidoc, for example, was a good guesser and a persevering man, but without educated thought, he erred continually by the very intensity of his investigations. I guess that was a police officer. He impaired his vision by holding the object too close. He might see perhaps one or two points with unusual clearness, but in doing so, he necessarily lost sight of the matter as a whole. Thus, there is such a thing as being too profound. Truth is not always in a well. In fact, as regards to more important knowledge, I do believe that she is invariably superficial. The depth lies in the valleys where we seek her, and not upon the mountaintops where she is found. Hmm. The modes and sources of this kind of error are well typified in the contemplation of the heavenly bodies. Oh, do go on, Dupin. To look at a star by glances, to view it in a sidelong way by turning toward it to exterior portions of the retina, more susceptible of feeble impressions of light than the interior, is to behold the, the star distinctly, is to have the best appreciation of its luster, a luster which grows dim just in proportion as we turn our vision fully upon it. A greater number of rays actually fall upon the eye in the latter case, but in the former, there is the more refined capacity for comprehension. By undue profundity, we perplex and enfeeble thought, and it is possible to make even Venus herself vanish from the firmament by a scrutiny too sustained, too concentrated, or too direct." Whoa, Dupin, I love the astronomy reference. So basically, just as he said, you can see like feeble stars in the sky more brilliantly if you look just to the, you know, just to the side of them. And that's because, you know, I, I don't remember if it's rods or cones that are um, more, you, you know, that are the light. One of what is it? Rods perceive color, cones perceive light. I don't know. There maybe one's better in day and one's at night. I can't remember. But basically, there's like a higher concentration around the edges of the retina than in the middle or something like that. So if we look to the left or right of a star, we perceive it more brilliantly. So that's what he's saying. Sometimes you don't want to look at the obvious things in a mystery. You have to kind of like look to the side of them to to get. A better comprehension. Oh, that was great. That was great, Poe. Let's keep going. This is still Dupin talking. As for these murders, let us enter into some examinations for ourselves before we make up an opinion respecting them. An inquiry will afford us amusement. <laughs> okay, so he's just looking for a good time, I guess. Uh, and then in brackets, he says, I thought this an odd term, so applied, but said nothing. Okay, now Dupin continues. And besides, Le Bon once rendered me a service for which I am not ungrateful. We will go to see the premises with our own eyes. 
I know G dash dash. Why do they do that? Um, that's a name, but he's not giving us the name. He's just G hyphen hyphen, whatever. I know G, uh, the prefect police, and shall have no difficulty in obtaining the necessary permission. The permission was obtained, and we proceeded at once to the Rue Morgue. This is one of those miserable thoroughfares which intervene between the Rue Richelieu and the Rue Saint-Roque. It was late in the afternoon when we reached it, as this quarter is at a great distance from that in which we resided. The house was readily found, for there were still many persons gazing up at the closed shutters with an objectless curiosity from the opposite side of the way. It was an ordinary Parisian uh, house with a gateway on one side of which was a glazed watch box with with a sliding panel in the window, indicating a Lorgue de Concierge. Before going in, we walked up the street, turned down an alley, and then, again turning, passed in the rear of the building. Dupin, meanwhile, examining the whole neighborhood, was, uh, as well as the house, with a minuteness of attention for which I could see no possible object. He's looking, he's looking to the left of the star, Mr. Poe, if, if indeed Poe you are the main character. Retracing our steps, we came again to the front of the dwelling, rang, and having shown our credentials, were admitted by the agents in charge. We went upstairs into the chamber where the body of Madame Soyel Le Espana had been found, and where both the deceased still lay. Ooh, they're still there. All right. Uh, the disorders of the room had, as usual, been suffered to exist. I saw nothing beyond what had been stated in the Gazette des Tribunaux. Um, I saw none. Okay, so everything looked as described in the in the newspaper. Dupin scrutinized everything, not excepting the bodies of the victims. We then went into the other rooms and into the yard, a gendarme accompanying us throughout. The examination occupied us until dark, when we took our departure. On our way home, my companion stepped in for a moment at the office of one of the daily papers. Okay, so they did their examination, and now they're, they went to a newspaper, I guess. I have said that the whims of my friend were manifold, and that je les magiais, whatever, for this phrase, there is no English equivalent. Okay, well, do you want to explain it then? It was his humor now to decline all conversation on the subject of the murder until about noon the next day. Then he asked me suddenly if I had observed anything peculiar at the scene of the atrocity. (laughs) They didn't talk about this until the next day. Sounds like my wife at a movie theater. Um, All right, where are we? There was something in his manner of emphasizing the word peculiar, which caused me to shudder without knowing why. Yeah, he's starting to think this guy's got like serious problems, I think. No, nothing peculiar, I said. Nothing more, at least, than we both saw stated in the paper. The Gazette, he replied. 
has not entered, I fear, into the unusual horror of the thing. But dismiss the idle opinions of this print. It appears to me that this mystery is considered insoluble for the very reason which should cause it to be regarded as easy of solution. I mean for the outre character of its features. I don't know what outre means. It'd really help if I knew French. The police are confounded by the seeming absence of motive, not for the murder itself, but for the atrocity of the murder. They are puzzled, too, by the seeming impossibility of reconciling the voices heard in contention with the facts that no one was discovered upstairs but the assassinated Madame Soyer L'Espanaye and that there were no means of egress without the police of the party, uh, without the notice of the party ascending. The wild disorder of the room, the corpse thrust with the head downward up the chimney, the frightful mutilation of the body of the old lady, these considerations with those just mentioned and others which I need not mention have sufficed to paralyze the powers by putting completely at fault the boasted acumen of the government agents. They have fallen into the gross but common error of confounding the unusual with the abstruse. But it is by these deviations from the plane of the ordinary that reason feels its way, if at all, in its search for the true. Wow. Um, You're losing me here. Uh, I mean, it's like, it sounds profound, but I'm not really following it. In investigations such as we are now pursuing, it should not be so much asked what has occurred as what has occurred that has never occurred before. In fact, the facility which I shall arrive, or have arrived, at the solution of this mystery is in the direct ratio of its apparent insolubility in the eyes of the police." Okay, (laughs) this next line uh, kind of makes, it's basically describing how I feel. I stared at the speaker in mute astonishment. (laughs) Okay, well, let's see. Uh, He continues. I am now awaiting, continued he, looking toward the door of our apartment. I am now awaiting a person who, although perhaps not the perpetrator of these butcheries, must have been in some measure implicated in their perpetration. Of the worst portion of the crimes committed, it is probable that he is innocent. I hope that I am right in this supposition, for upon it I build my expectation of reading the entire riddle. I look for the man here in this room every moment. It is true that he may not arrive, but the probability is that he will. Should he come, it will be necessary to, de- to detain him. Here are pistols, <laughs> and we have, and we both know how to use them when occasion demands their use. Oh, damn. It's going down, you guys. Uh, they're waiting here at the newspaper with pistols. Okay. I took the pistols, scarcely knowing what I did, or believing what I heard, while Dupin went on, very much as if in a soliloquy. <laughs> 
I have already spoken of his abstract manner at such times. His discourse was addressed to myself, but his voice, although by no means loud, had that intonation which is commonly employed in speaking to someone uh, at a great distance. His eyes, vacant in expression, regarded only the wall. He goes on. That the voices heard in contention, he said, by the party upon the stairs, were not the voices of the women themselves, was fully proved by the evidence. This relieves us of all doubt upon the question whether the old lady could have first destroyed the daughter and afterward have committed suicide. I speak of this point chiefly for the sake of method, for the strength of Madame L'Espagnaille would have been utterly unequal to the task of thrusting her daughter's corpse up the chimney as it was found. And the nature of the wounds upon her own person entirely preclude the idea of self-destruction. Murder, then, has been committed by some third party, and the voices of this third party were those heard in contention. Let me now advert, not to the whole testimony respecting these voices, but what was peculiar in that testimony. Did you observe anything peculiar about it? Okay, I'm going to guess. What what did I find peculiar about the testimony of the voices? My guess is that they were all over the place. People like thought different accents. They heard different accents. Okay, that's my guess. Uh, okay, so I remarked that while all the witnesses agreed in supposing the gruff voice to be that of a Frenchman, there was much disagreement in regard to the shrill, or as one individual termed it, the harsh voice. Yes, I think he agrees with me. Uh, <clears throat> that was the evidence itself, said Dupin, but it was not the peculiarity of the evidence. You have observed nothing distinctive, yet there was something to be observed. The witness, as you remark, agreed, the witnesses, as you remark, reg- agreed about the gruff voice. They were in unanimous. But in regard to the shrill voice, the peculiarity is not that they disagreed, but that while an Italian, an Englishman, a Spaniard, a Hollander, and a Frenchman attempted to describe it, each one spoke of it as that of a foreigner. Each is sure that it was not the voice of one of his own countrymen. Each likens it not to the voice of an individual of a nation with whose language he is conversant, but the converse. The Frenchman supposes it the voice of a Spaniard, and might have distinguished some words had he been acquainted with the Spanish. The Dutchman maintains it to have been that of a Frenchman, but we find it stated that not understanding French, this witness was examined through an interpreter. The Englishman thinks it was the voice of a German, and does not understand German. The Spaniard is sure that it was that of an Englishman, but judges by the intonation altogether, as he has no knowledge of the English. The Italian believes it the voice of a Russian, but has never conversed with a native Russian. (laughs) Okay, so, uh, the main character and I agree, but Dupin set us straight that it's not that they all disagree, it's that they all think it was a different language than what they are familiar with. A second Frenchman differs, moreover, with the first and is positive that the voice was that of an Italian, but not being cognizant of that language is, like the Spaniard, 
convinced by the intonation. Now, how strangely unusual must that voice have really been about which such a, uh, excuse me about which such testimony as this could have been elicited? In whose tones even denizens of the five great divisions of Europe could recognize nothing familiar? You will say that it might have been the voice of an Asiatic or an African. Neither Asiatics nor Africans abound in Paris, but without denying the inference, I will now merely call your attention to three points. The voice is termed by one witness harsh rather than shrill. It is represented by two others to have been quick and unequal. No words, no sounds resembling words, were by any witness uh, mentioned as distinguishable. I know not, continued Dupin, what impression I may have made so far upon your own understanding. But I do not hesitate to say that legitimate deductions, even from this portion of the testimony, the portion respecting the gruff and shrill voices, are in themselves sufficient to engender a suspicion which should give direction to all farther progress in the investigation of the mystery. I said legitimate deductions, but my meaning is not thus fully expressed. I designed to imply that the deductions are the sole proper ones, and that the suspicions arrive inevitably from them as the single result. What the suspicion is, however, I will not say just yet. I merely wish you to bear in mind that, with myself, it was sufficiently forcible to give a definite form, a certain tendency to my inquiries in the chamber. All right, that's a lot of explaining. Uh, Let's get the move on, Dupin. What happens next? Let us now transport ourselves in fancy to this chamber. What shall we seek? Uh, what shall we first seek here? The means of egress employed by the murderers. It is not too much to say that neither of us believe in preternatural events. Madame and Madame Soisel les Espanaye, I'm sorry, you guys, <laughs> were not destroyed by spirits. The doers of the deed were material and escaped materially. Then how? Fortunately, there is but one mode of reasoning upon the point, and that mode must lead us to a definite decision. Let us examine each by each the possible means of egress. Okay, so I guess they're still waiting for this guy to show up at the newspaper. And while waiting, um, he has now explained what the mystery is with the voice. And now we're going to cover how they may have egressed, escaped the building. Uh, Okay. It is clear that the assassins were in the room where Madame Soyel Le Espanaye was found, or at least in the room adjoining when the party ascended the stairs. It is then only from these two apartments that we have to seek issues. The police have said uh, the police have laid bare the floors, the ceilings, and the masonry of the walls in every direction. No secret issues could have escaped their vigilance. But not trusting their eyes, 
I examined with my own. There were then no secret issues. Both doors leading from the rooms into the passage were securely locked with the keys inside. Let us turn to the chimneys. These, although of ordinary width for some eight or ten feet above the hearths, will not admit, throughout their extent, the body of a large cat. Okay, so they're very, they're, a human can't go through it all the way. The impossibility of egress, uh, by means already stated, being thus absolute, we are reduced to the windows. Through those of the front room, no one could have escaped without notice from the crowd in the street. The murderers must have passed, then, through those of the back room. Now, brought to this conclusion in so unequivocal a manner as we are, it is not our part, as reasoners, to reject it on account of apparent impossibilities. It is only left for us to prove that these apparent impossibilities are, in reality, not such. Okay. There are two windows in the chamber. One of them is unobstructed by furniture and is wholly visible. The lower portion of the other is hidden from view by the head of the unwieldy bedstead, which is thrust close up against it. The former was found securely fastened from within. It resisted the utmost force of those who endeavored to raise it. A large gimlet hole had been pierced in its frame to the left and a very stout nail was found fitted therein nearly to the head upon examining the other window a similar nail was seen similarly fitted in and a vigorous attempt to raise this sash failed also the police were now entirely satisfied that egress had not been in these directions and therefore it was thought a matter of super super arrogation to withdraw the nails and open the windows. My own examination was somewhat more particular and was so and was so for the reason I have just given because here it was I knew that all apparent impossibilities must be proved to be not such in reality. I proceeded to think thus, a posteriori. The murderers did escape from one of these windows. This being so, they could not have refastened the sashes from the inside, as they were found fastened. The consideration which put a stop through its obviousness to the scrutiny of the police in the quarter. Um, yet the sashes were fastened. They must, then, have the power of fastening themselves. There was no escape from this conclusion. I stepped to the unobstructed casement, withdrew the nail with some difficulty, and attempted to raise the sash. It resisted all my efforts, as I had anticipated. A concealed spring must, I now know, exist. And this corroboration of my idea convinced me that my premise, at least, were correct premises, at least, were correct. However, however, mysterious still appeared the circumstances attending these the nails. A careful search soon brought to light the hidden spring. I pressed it and, satisfied with the discovery, forbore to upraise the sash. We've got a hidden passage, folks. Is that is that what I'm reading right here? 
basically he was like all all evidence points to something impossible happening which the police dismissed but since i knew that my previous logic led me to the only possibility being that it was fastened from the inside or outside or some weird thing like that that there had to be some secret lever like a spring and and he found it okay well let's let's keep reading I now replaced the nail and regarded it attentively. A person passing out through this window might have reclosed it, and the spring would have caught, but the nail could not have been replaced. The conclusion was plain, and again narrowed in the field of my investigations. The assassins must have escaped through the other window. Supposing then the springs upon each sash to be the same as was probable, there must be found a difference between the nails or at least being or at least between the modes of their fixture getting upon the sacking of the bedstead i looked over the headboard minutely and the second casement passing my hand down behind the board i readily discovered and pressed the spring which was as i had supposed identical in character with its neighbor i now looked at the nail It was as stout as the other, and apparently fitted in the same manner, driven in nearly up to the head. You will say that I was puzzled, but if you think so, you must have misunderstood the nature of the inductions. To use a sporting phrase, I had not been once at fault. The scent had never for an instant been lost. There was no flaw in any link of the chain. I had traced the secret to its ultimate result, and that result was the nail. It had, I say, in every respect, the appearance of its fellow in the other window. But this fact was an absolute nullity. Conclusive us, conclusive us it might seem to be, when compared with the consideration that here, at this point, terminated the clue. That is written very weird, but um, basically he's saying, if you think I'm wrong, I'm not, actually. Let's see why. There must be something wrong, I said, about the nail. I touched it, and the head, with about a quarter of an inch of the shank, came off in my fingers. Okay, so it's like a fake nail or something. The rest of the shank was in the gimlet hole where it had been broken off. The fracture was an old one, for its edges were encrusted with rust, and had apparently been accomplished by the blow of a hammer, which had partially embedded in the top of the bottom sash and the head portion of the nail. I now carefully replaced this head portion in the indentation whence I had taken it, and the resemblance to a perfect nail was complete. The fissure was invisible. Pressing the spring, I gently raised the sash for a few inches. The head went up with it, remaining firm in its bed. I closed the window, and the semblance of the whole nail was again perfect. 
You know, I'm actually, I'm really having trouble imagining the details of what's going on here. I don't exactly know, like, are, are we just talking about, like, the shutter of a window opening? I don't, I'm not really sure. A sash? I'm not sure what the sash is referring to. But the important parts is that what looks to be a fixed, a, a securely nailed in thing and could have never been like reclosed from the outside or something. I think that's what they're getting at is actually a false nail or something. Um, and you can put the head back over the nail or something and it looks like it's fixed. I don't know. It's something like that. I'm not going to worry too much about it, but um, let's keep going. Okay. The riddle so far was now unriddled. The assassin had escaped through the window, which looked upon the bed, dropping of its own accord upon his exit, or perhaps purposely closed. It had become fastened by the spring, and it was the retention of the spring, which had been mistaken by the police, for that of the nail. Farther inquiry being thus considered unnecessary. Okay, I don't think it's a trap. It's not a trap door. It's just a shutter. We're just talking about a shutter. Um, and the cops thought it was fastened securely with a nail, but in fact, it was not. Okay, the next question is that of the mode of descent. Upon this point, I have been satisfied in my walk with you around the building. About five feet and a half from the casement in question, there runs a lightning rod. From this rod, it would have been impossible for anyone to reach the window itself. Okay, hold on. About five feet and a half from the encasement in question, there runs a lightning rod. Okay, so I'm seeing, so there's a window, and at five feet outside the window, there's a lightning rod. Um, from this rod, it would have been impossible for anyone to reach the window itself, to say nothing of entering it. I observed, however, that the shutters of the fourth story were of the peculiar kind, called by Parisian carpenters, Ferrades, a kind of rarely employed at the present day, a kind rarely employed at the present day, but frequently seen upon very old mansions at Lyons and Bordeaux. They are in the form of an ordinary door, a single, not a folding door, except that the lower half is latticed or worked in open trellis, thus affording an excellent hold for the hands. In the present instance, these shutters are fully three feet and a half broad. When we saw them from the rear of the house, they were both about half open. That is to say, they stood off at right angles from the wall. This is probable that the, it is probable that the police, as well as myself, examined the back of the tenement. But if so, in looking at these ferrades in the line of their breadth, as they must have done, they did not perceive this great breadth itself, or at all events, failed to take it into due consideration. In fact, having once satisfied themselves that no egress could have been made in this quarter, they would naturally bestow here a very cursory examination. It was clear to me, however, that the shutter belonging to the window at the head of the bed would, if swung fully back to the wall, reach to within two feet of the lightning rod. Okay, okay. I mean, personally, I don't think five feet outside of a window is too far for someone to leap. Maybe it's a small window and like leaping would be out of the question though. But with the addition of these 
shutters, these ferrades, I guess is a French type of shutter with good handholds, <laughs> uh, you can get two feet to the lightning rod. Okay. Um, where am I now? <laughs> uh, within two feet of the lightning rod. It was also evident that by exertion of a very unusual degree of activity and courage, an entrance into the window from the rod might have been thus affected. Okay, so they could have escaped and gotten in that way. By reaching to the distance of two feet and a half, we now suppose the shutter open to its whole extent, a robber might have taken a firm grasp upon the trellis work, letting go then his hold upon the rod, placing his feet securely against the wall and springing boldly from it, he might have swung the shutter so as to close it, and if we imagine the window open at the time, might even have swung himself into the room. Okay, so that's how he's thinking the robber got in and got out. I wish you to bear especially in mind that I have spoken of a very unusual degree of activity as requisite to success in so hazardous and so difficult a feat. It is my design to show you, first, that the thing might possibly have been accomplished. But secondly, and chiefly, I wish to impress upon your understanding the very extraordinary, the almost preternatural character of that agility which could have accomplished it. So, it's doable, as he described it, but it would take an athlete, apparently, to be able to do it. You will say, no doubt, using the language of the law, that to make out my case, I should rather undervalue than insist upon a full estimation of the activity required in this matter. This may be the practice in law, but it is not the usage of reason. My ultimate object is only the truth. My immediate purpose is to lead you to place in juxtaposition that very unusual activity of which I have just spoken with that very peculiar, shrill, or harsh, and unequal voice about whose nationality no two persons could be found to agree, and in whose utterance no syllabification could be detected. That's a fun word, syllabification. At these words... Okay, finally, Dupin has stopped talking. All of that was Dupin dialogue. It was okay. It was kind of uh, verbose. But now we um, have a small paragraph of not dialogue. At these words, a vague and half-formed conception of the meaning of Dupin flitted over my mind. I seemed to be upon the verge of comprehension without power to comprehend. As men at times find themselves upon the brink of remembrance without being able in the end to remember. My friend went on with his discourse. I'd say it's a discourse. Okay, so we're starting to get it. I don't know. Have we already met this character? I don't know. Have we already met the character that he's trying to help us understand? Think. Who? Who's? Uh, was it the fruiterer? Oh my goodness, was it the fruiterer? That's my guess. I say it's the fruiterer. Okay, here we go. 
You will see, he said, that I have shifted the question from the mode of egress to that of ingress. It was my design to convey the idea that both were affected in the same manner, at the same point. Let us now revert to the interior of the room. Let us survey the appearances here. The drawers of the bureau, it is said, had been rifled, although many articles of apparel still remained within them. The conclusion here is absurd. It is a mere guess, a very silly one, and no more. How are we to know that the articles found in the drawers were not all these drawers had originally contained? Madame l'Espanaye and her daughter lived an exceedingly retired life, saw no company, seldom went out, had little use for numerous changes of habiliment. Those found were at least of as good quality as any likely to be possessed by these ladies. If a thief had taken any, by uh, why did he not take the best? Why did he not take all? In a word, why did he abandon 4,000 francs in gold to encounter himself with a bundle of linen? The gold was abandoned. Oh, it was? I thought they stole the gold. This whole time I thought they stole the gold. I thought they found a a chest uh, empty. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry if I made you guys think that. <laughs> I, I guess I, maybe we still don't know a motive. I thought that was the motive. Okay, well, it says the gold was abandoned. Or maybe it was the motive, but they didn't have time to swipe it. I don't know. Uh, nearly the whole sum mentioned by Monsieur Mignau, the banker, was discovered in bags upon the floor. I wish you, therefore, to discard from your thoughts... The blundering idea of motive. Man, I'm so bad. I'm sorry, Dupin. I'm just falling for these obvious mistakes. Engendered in the brains of the police by that portion of the evidence which speaks of money delivered at the door of the house. Coincidences ten times as remarkable as this, the delivery of money and murder committed within three days upon the party receiving it, happened to all of us every hour's every hour of our lives without attracting even momentary notice. (laughs) Uh, Coincidences in general are great stumbling blocks in the way of that class of thinkers who have been educated to know nothing of the theory of probabilities. That theory to which the most glorious objects of human research are indebted for the most glorious of illustration. In the present instance, Had the gold been gone, the fact of its delivery three days before would have formed something more than a coincidence. It would have been corroborative of this idea of motive. But under the real circumstances of the case, if we are to suppose gold the motive of this outrage, we must also imagine the perpetrator so vacillating an idiot as to have abandoned his gold and his motive together. Keeping now steadily in mind the points to which I have drawn your attention, that peculiar voice, that unusual agility, and that startling absence of motive in a murder so singularly atrocious as this, let us glance at the butchery itself. Here is a woman strangled to death by manual strength, 
and thrust up a chimney, head downward. Ordinary assassins employ no such modes of murder as this. Least of all, do they dispose of the murdered. Sorry, (laughs) I read that wrong. It's like, it didn't make sense in my head. I read it wrong. Let me reread that. Least of all, do they thus dispose of the murdered. In the manner of thrusting the corpse up the chimney, you will admit that there was something excessively outré. I don't know what outré means. Something altogether irreconcilable with our common notions of human action. Even when we suppose the actors thus most depraved of men. Think, too, how great must have been that strength which could have thrust the body up such an aperture so forcibly that the united vigor of several persons was found barely sufficient to drag it down. Yeah, how did this person stick this chick up the chimney? And why? Hmm. Uh, Let's see. Turn now to other indications of the employment of a vigor most marvelous. On the hearth were thick tresses, very thick tresses, of gray human hair. These had been torn out by the roots. You are aware of the great force necessary in tearing thus from the head even twenty or thirty hairs together. You saw the locks in question as well as myself. Their roots, a hideous sight, were clotted with fragments of flesh of the scalp. Ugh! Sure token of the prodigious power which had been exerted in uprooting perhaps half a million of hairs at a time. Half a million? Are there 500,000? Is a lock of hair 500,000 hair? I feel like that number is too big. Anyway... The throat of the old lady was not merely cut, but the head absolutely severed from the body. The instrument was a mere razor. I wish you also to look at the brutal ferocity of these deeds, of the bruises upon body upon the body of Madame Le Espanaye. I do not speak. Monsieur Dumas and his worthy code code. Codjutor, I don't know, Monsieur Etienne, have pronounced that they were inflicted by some obtuse instrument. And so far, these gentlemen are very correct. The obtuse instrument was clearly the stone pavement in the yard. Oh. Upon which the victim had fallen from the window, which looked in upon the bed. This idea, however simple it may now seem, escaped the police for the same reason that the breadth of the shutters escaped them, because by the affair of the nails, their perceptions had been hermetically sealed against the possibility of the windows having ever been opened at all. Okay, so if you don't think the windows could have been opened then you wouldn't ever think that she had been thrown out the window and then her bruises are a mystery. You think some blunt object, um, not the floor, was, was at play. Okay. If now, in addition to all these things, 
you have properly reflected upon the odd disorder of the chamber, we have gone so far as to combine the ideas of an agility outstanding, a strength superhuman, a ferocity brutal, a butchery without motive, a grotesquery in horror absolutely alien from humanity, and a voice foreign in tone to the ears of men of many nations, and devoid of all distinct or intelligible syllabification. What result, then, has ensued? What impression have I made upon your fancy? (laughs) This is great. It's like all these crazy things. And what do you think? What do you think is the answer? I felt a creeping of the flesh as Dupin asked me the question. A madman, I said, has done this deed. Some raving maniac escaped from a neighboring mansion de santé. <laughs> no, my my son de santé. I don't know what that is. Is that like a loony? Uh, I sorry, I have to know that because I'll bet it's like a um a crazy house. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. A health institution. Yep. <laughs> This is great. In some respects, he replied, your idea is not irrelevant, but the voices of madmen, even in their wildest paroxysms, are never found to tally with that peculiar voice heard upon the stairs. Madmen are of some nation, and their language, however incoherent in its words, has always the coherence of syllabification. Besides, the hair of a madman is not such as I now hold in my hand. I disentangled this little tuft from the rigidly clutched fingers of Madame L'Espanaye. Tell me what you can make of it. (laughs) So he, he pocketed a lock of hair, which he took from the old lady outside from her from her hands so is the lock of hair not from it's obviously not from her okay dupine i said completely unnerved this hair is most unusual this is no human hair oh my goodness you guys so it's like a beast did a beast no that's what he wants me to think hmm i mean it's not an alien <laughs> Hmm, what is it? A bear? I don't know. Okay. I have not asserted that it is, he said, uh, that it's that it's not human. But before we decide this point, I wish you to glance at the little sketch I have here traced upon this paper. It is a facsimile drawing of what has been described in one portion of the testimony as dark bruises and deep indentations of fingernails upon the uh i've paused wrong (laughs) upon the fingernails upon the throat of madame soyel le espanaye and in another by mrs dumas or mr dumas and etienne as a series of livid spots, evidently by evidently the impression of fingers. Um, okay, so they're looking at a drawing of the bruises that are evidently made by fingers. You will perceive, continued my friend, 
spreading out the paper upon the table before us, that this drawing gives the idea of a firm and flexed hold. There is no slipping apparent. Each finger has retained, possibly until the death of the victim, the fearful grasp by which it originally embedded itself. Attempt now to place all your fingers at the same time in the respective impressions as you see them. I made the attempt in vain. We are possibly not giving this matter a fair trial, he said. The paper is spread out upon a plain surface, but the human throat is cylindrical. Here is a billet of wood, the circumference of which is about that of the throat. Wrap the drawing around it and try the experiment again. I did so, but the difficulty was even more obvious than before. This, I said, is the mark of no human hand. Was it a monkey? (laughs) Did a monkey escape? Oh my goodness. Um, okay. Read now, replied Dupin, this passage from Curvier. Cuvier. It was a minute, it was a minute anatomical and generally descriptive account of the large fulvous orangutan of the East Indian Islands. The gigantic stature, the prodigious strength and activity, the wild ferocity, and the imitative propensities of these mammalia are sufficiently well known to all. I understood the full horrors of the murder at once. It was a monkey? An orangutan did this. Wow. The description of the digits, said I as I made an end of reading, is in exact accordance with this drawing. I see that no animal but an orangutan of the species here mentioned could have impressed the indentations as you have traced them. This tuft of tawny hair, too, is identical in character with that of the beast of Cuvier. But I cannot possibly comprehend the particulars of this frightful mystery. Besides, There were two voices heard in contention, and one of them was unquestionably the voice of a Frenchman. True, and you will remember an expression attributed almost unanimously by the evidence to this voice. The expression, mon dieu, this, under the circumstances, has been justly characterized by one of the witnesses, Montani the confectioner as an expression of remonstrance or expostulation. Upon these two words, therefore, I have mainly built my hopes of a full solution of of the riddle. A Frenchman was cognizant of the murder. It is possible, indeed, it is far more than probable. It is possible, indeed, it is far more than probable that he was innocent of all participation in the bloody transactions which took place. The orangutan may have escaped from him. He may have traced it to the chamber, but under the agitating circumstances which ensued, he could never have recaptured it. It is still at large. I will not pursue these guesses, for I have no right to call them more, since the shades of reflection upon which they are based are scarcely of sufficient depth to be appreciable 
by my own intellect, and since I could not pretend to make them intelligible to the understanding of another. We will call them guesses then and speak of them as such. Weird. I thought he was just saying that they're not guesses. Uh, Anyway, that was a confusing sentence. I may have read it weird. Anyway, let's refer to them as guesses. If the Frenchman in question is indeed, as I suppose, innocent of this atrocity, this advertisement, which I left last night upon our return home at the office of Le Monde, a paper devoted to the shipping interest and much sought by sailors, will bring him to our residence. He handed me a paper, and I read thus. Caught in the Bois de Bologne early in the morning of the blank blank inst, the morning of the murder, uh, in parentheses, the morning of the murder, owner a very large tawny orangutan of the Bornese species. The owner, who is ascertained to be a sailor belonging to a Maltese vessel, may have the animal again. Upon identifying it satisfactorily and paying a few charges arising from its capture and keeping, call at blank blank rue blank blank Farborough St. Germain au Troiseme. So it's like a editorial no what what are the uh class it's like a classified <laughs> it's like a classified ad in the in the paper uh somebody caught an orangutan and uh if you want it come back give us a little money for the trouble you can have it okay uh how is it possible i asked that you should know the man to be a sailor and belonging to a maltese vessel um I do not know it, said Dupin. I am not sure of it. Here, however, is a small piece of ribbon, which from its form and from its greasy appearance has evidently been used in tying the hair in one of those long cues of which sailors are so fond. <laughs> Ponytails, I guess. Moreover, this knot is one, of, uh, is one which few besides sailors can tie. It is particular, peculiar to the Maltese. I picked the ribbon up at the foot of the lightning rod. Uh, It could not have belonged to either of the deceased. Now, if, after all, I am wrong in my induction from this ribbon, that the Frenchman was a sailor belonging to a Maltese vessel, still I can have done no harm in saying what I did in the advertisement. Oh, he, he left, he put the, he put the classified in the paper. And that's why they're they're waiting at the newspaper because he's assuming this guy's going to show up for his orangutan, even though they don't have it. <laughs> okay, it's coming together. Um, if I'm in error, he will merely suppose that I have been misled by some circumstance into which he will not take the trouble to inquire. But if I am right, a great point is gained cognizant although innocent of the murderer of the murder the frenchman will naturally hesitate about replying to the advertisement about demanding the orangutan he will reason thus i am innocent i am poor my orangutan is of great value to one in my circumstances a fortune of itself why should i lose it through idle apprehensions of danger 
here it is within my grasp. I was found in the Bois de. It was found in the Bois de Boulogne, at a vast distance from the scene of that butchery. How can it ever be suspected that a brute beast should have done the deed? The police are at fault. They have failed to procure the slightest clue. Should they even trace the animal, it would be impossible to prove me cognizant of the murder or to implicate me in guilt on account of that cognizance. Above all, I am known. The advertiser designates me as the possessor of the beast. I am not sure to what limit his knowledge may extend. Should I avoid claiming a property of so great value, which it is known that I possess? Oh, no, 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 sorry, that's not a question. Should I avoid claiming a property of so great value, which it is known that I possess, I will render the animal at least liable to suspicion. It is not my policy to attract attention either to myself or to the beast. I will answer the advertisement, get the orangutan, and keep it close until this matter has blown over. Um, I didn't quite follow that train of thought, but basically... He's saying that the sailor should get the orangutan. <laughs> okay. At this moment, we heard a step upon the stairs. Be ready, said Dupin, with your pistols. But neither use them nor show them until at a signal from myself. The front door of the house had been left open, and the visitor had entered, without ringing, and advanced several steps upon the staircase. Now, however, he seemed to hesitate. Presently, we heard him descending. Dupin was moving quickly to the door when again we heard him coming up. He did not turn back a second time, but stepped up with decision and rapped at the door of our chamber. Come in, said Dupin in a cheerful and hearty tone. A man entered. He was a sailor, evidently, a tall, stout, and muscular-looking person with a certain daredevil expression of countenance, not altogether unprepossessing. His face, greatly sunburnt, was more half-hidden by whisker and mustachio. He had with him a huge oaken cudgel, but appeared to be otherwise unarmed. He bowed awkwardly and bade us good evening, in French accents, which, although somewhat New, Neufchatelish, what? Neufchatelish, I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a province of France or whatever. Anyway, maybe it is. Uh, although somewhat Neufchatelish were still sufficiently indicative of a Parisian origin. Sit down, my friend, said Dupin. I suppose you have called about the orangutan. Upon my word, I almost envy you the possession of him, a remarkably fine and no doubt a very valuable animal. How old do you suppose him to be? The sailor drew a long breath, with the air of a man relieved of some intolerable burden, and then replied in an assured tone, I have no way of telling, but he can't be more than four or five years old. Have you got him here? Oh, no, we had no conveniences for keeping him here. He is at a livery stable in the Rue Dugbur, just by. You can get him in the morning. Of course, you are prepared to identify the property? To be sure I am, sir. 
I shall be sorry to part with him, said Dupin. I don't mean that you should be at all this trouble for nothing, sir, said the man. Couldn't expect it. Am very willing to pay a reward for the finding of the animal. That is to say, anything in reason. Well, replied my friend, that is all very fair, to be sure. Let me think. What should I have? Oh, I will tell you. My reward shall be this. You shall give me all the information in your power about these murders in the Rue Morgue. Dupin said the last words in a very low tone and very quietly. Okay, oops, I should have said that low and quietly. (laughs) Just as quietly, too, he walked toward the door, locked it, and put the key in his pocket. Then he then drew a pistol from his bosom and placed it, without the least flurry, upon the table. The sailor's face flushed up as if he were struggling with suffocation. He started to his feet and grasped his cudgel, but the next moment he fell back into his seat, trembling violently, and with the countenance of death itself. He spoke not a word. I pitied him from the bottom of my heart. My dear friend, said Dupin in kind tone, you are alarming yourself unnecessarily. You are indeed. We mean you no harm whatever. I pledge you the honor of a gentleman and of a Frenchman that we intend you no injury. I perfectly well know that you are innocent of the atrocities in the Rue Morgue. It will not do, however, to deny that you are in some measure implicated in them. From what I have already said, you must know that I have had uh, means of information about this matter, means of which you could never have dreamed. Now, the thing stands thus. You have done nothing which you could have avoided. Nothing, certainly, which renders you culpable. You were not even guilty of robbery when you might have robbed with impunity. You have nothing to conceal. You have no reason for concealment. On the other hand, you are bound by every principle of honor to confess all you know. An innocent man is now imprisoned charged with that crime of which you can point out the perpetrator. The sailor had recovered his presence of mind in a great measure while Dupin uttered these words, but his original boldness of bearing was all gone. So help me God, said he after a brief pause. I will tell you all I know about this affair, but I do not expect you to believe one half. I say I would be a fool indeed if I did. Still, I am innocent, and I will make a clean breast if I die for it. What he stated was, in substance, this. He had lately made a voyage to the Indian archipelago, a party of which he informed one landed uh, at Borneo, and passed into the interior on an excursion of pleasure. Himself and a companion had captured the orangutan. This companion dying, the animal fell into his own exclusive possession. After great trouble occasioned by the intractable ferocity of his captive during the voyage home, he at length succeeded in lodging it safely at his own residence in Paris, where, not to attract toward himself the unpleasant curiosity of his neighbors, he kept it carefully secluded until such time as it should recover from a wound in the foot received from a splinter on board ship. His ultimate design was to sell it. 
Returning home from some sailor's frolic the night, or rather in the morning of the murder, he found the beast occupying his own bedroom, into which it had broken from a closet adjoining where it had been, as was thought securely confined. Jeez, locking this poor guy in a closet? Razor in hand and fully lathered, it was sitting before a looking glass attempting to the operation of shaving. <laughs> what? In which it had no doubt previously watched its master through the keyhole of the closet. Okay, I see. Um, terrified at the sight of so dangerous a weapon in the possession of an animal so ferocious and so well able to use it, the man, for some moments, was at a loss what to do. He had been accustomed, however, to... Uh, to quiet the creature, even in its fiercest moods, by use of a whip. Ah, this guy. And to this he now resorted. Upon sight of it, the orangutan sprang at once through the door of the chamber, down the stairs, and thence, through a window, unfortunately open, into the street. The Frenchman followed in despair, the ape, razor still in hand, occasionally stopping to look back and gesticulate at its pursuer, until the latter had nearly come come up with it. It then again made off. In this manner, the chase continued for a long time. The streets were profoundly quiet, as it was nearly three o'clock in the morning. In passing down an alley in the rear of the Rue Morgue, the fugitive's attention was arrested by a light gleaming from the open window of Madame Le Espanaye's chamber. In the fourth story of her house, uh, in the fourth story of her house, rushing to the building, it perceived the lightning rod, clambered up with inconceivable agility, grasped the shutter, which was thrown fully back against the wall, and by its means swung itself directly upon the headboard of the bed. The whole feat did not occupy a minute. The shutter was kicked open again by the orangutan as it entered the room. Hmm. So the sailor could see all this, I guess, because uh, he's telling the story. Uh, anyway, the sailor, in the meantime, was both rejoiced and perplexed. He had strong hopes of now recapturing the brute, as it could scarcely escape from the trap into which it had ventured, except by the rod, where it might be intercepted as it came down. On the other hand, there was much cause for anxiety as to what it might do in the house. This latter reflection urged the man still to follow the fugitive, a lightning rod is ascended without difficulty, especially by a sailor, but when he had arrived as high as the window, which lay far to his left, his career was stopped. The most that he had accomplished, uh, the most that he could accomplish was to reach over so as to obtain a glimpse of the interior of the room. At this glimpse, he nearly fell from his hold through excess of horror. Now it was that those hideous shrieks arose upon the night, which had startled from slumber the inmates of the Rue Morgue. Madame L'Espagne and her daughter, habited in their night clothes, had apparently been occupied in arranging some papers in the iron chest already mentioned, which had been wheeled into the middle of the room. It was open, and its contents lay beside it on the floor. The victims must have been sitting with their backs toward the window, and from the time elapsing between the ingress of the beast and the screams, it seemed probable that it was not immediately perceived. The flapping, too, of the shutter would naturally have been attributed to the wind. If I'm reading this kind of quick and, like, not with a lot of emotion, it's just because, I don't know, I feel like it's wrapping up, and uh, this is all just kind of, like, long-winded explanation. <laughs> 
Anyway, let's continue. As the sailor looked in, the gigantic animal had seized Madame L'Espanaille by the hair, which was loose, as she had been combing it, and was flourishing the razor about her face. Yikes! In, in, in imitation of the motions of a barber. The daughter lay prostrate with, and motionless. She had swooned. The screams and struggles of the old lady during which the hair was torn from her head had the effect of changing the probably pacific purposes of the orangutan into those of wrath. With one determined sweep of its muscular arm, it nearly severed her head from her body. How could it, like, really with a, I guess, the kind of razor he's talking about, they're sort of long. I mean, maybe not, probably not the depth of her neck, which I guess is why it was hanging on by just a thread. The sight of blood inflamed its anger into frenzy. Gnashing its teeth and flashing fire from its eyes, it flew upon the body of the girl and embedded its fearful talons in her, in her throat. Retaining its grasp until she expired, its wandering and wild glances fell at this moment upon the head of the bed over which the face of its master, rigid with horror, was just discernible. The fury of the beast, who no doubt bore still in mind the dreaded whip, was instantly converted into fear. Conscious of having deserved punishment, it seemed desirous of concealing its bloody deeds and skipped about the chamber in an agony of nervous agitation." Throwing down and breaking the furniture as it moved and dragging the bed from the bedstead, from the bedstead. In conclusion, it seized first the corpse of the daughter and thrust it up the chimney as it, as it was found. Then that of the old lady, which it immediately hurled through the window headlong. As the ape approached the casement with its mutilated burden, the sailor shrank aghast to the rod and rather gliding than clambering down it, hurried at once home. Dreading the consequences of the butchery and gladly abandoning in his terror all solicitude about the fate of the orangutan. The words heard by the party upon the staircase were the Frenchman's exclamations of horror and affright, commingled with the fiendish jabberings of the brute. I have scarcely anything to add. The orangutan must have escaped from the chamber by the rod just before the breaking of the door. I think this is the main character speaking now, but I think he's like speaking to us because it's not in quotes. It must have closed the window as it passed through it. It was subsequently caught by the owner himself who obtained it a very, who obtained it for a very large sum at the Jardin de Plantes. Wait, what? It was subsequently caught by the owner himself. So he has the orangutan who obtained it for a very large sum at the Jardin de Plantes, Le Don was instantly released upon our narration of the circumstances with some comments from Dupin at the Bureau of the Prefect of Police. Oh, um, oh, okay, got it. Okay, so now it's like later on, the orangutan must have escaped from the chamber by the rod just before breaking out. It must have closed the window. Okay, it subsequently was caught by the owner himself who obtained it for a very large sum. So, I guess they let the owner go, the sailor go. Hmm. Okay. Ladon was released. Okay. This functionary, however, well disposed, uh, this functionary, however, well disposed to my friend could not altogether conceal his chagrin at the turn which affairs had taken and was fain to indulge in a sarcasm or two about the propriety, the 
propriety of every person minding his own business. Let him talk, said Dupin, who had not thought it necessary to reply. Let him discourse. It will erase, it will ease his conscience. I am satisfied with having defeated him in his own castle. Nevertheless, that he failed in the solution of this mystery is by no means that matter for which he supposes it. For in truth, our friend the prefect is somewhat too cunning to be profound. In his wisdom is no stamen. It is all head and no body, like the pictures of the goddess Laverna, or at best, all head and shoulders like a codfish. But he is a good creature after all. I like him especially for one master stroke of cant, by which he has attained his reputation for ingenuity. I mean the way he has denir ce qui est et de expliquer ce qui n'est pas. And there's an asterisk, and the asterisk note says Rosso Novel Helois. Well, that's how it ends, everyone, um, on a French line that I can't translate for you, but I'm going to do that right now. It means to deny what is and to explain what is not. (laughs) Okay. Oh, low jab. Um, okay. Well, that was the murders at Rue Morgue. The murders in the Rue Morgue. Uh, what did I think of this? What did I think of it? Okay. Well, first of all, let's, let's talk about how this went down. So I guess, I mean, you know, it gave a pretty good explanation, but if, uh, you kind of got lost, um, basically they figured out it was an orangutan. that did it. <laughs> They figured out that all these things that were seemingly impossible and that the prefect was just going to leave, you know, unsolvable. Um, there was an explanation for it. It was a very unlikely explanation. Who could have imagined that it was an orangutan? I mean, that actually just seems, by the way, it's spelt like, they spell orangutan different than we spell it nowadays. Um, It's two words, and it's interesting. Anyway, um, it's spelled our-ang, out-ang, our-ang-out-ang. Anyway, the story is not bad. I, I I liked the first part better than the second part, for sure. And the reason why is there was more narrative in the first part. Not a lot, to be honest. I mean, the whole story wasn't a lot of narrative. And especially the second part, how it went over the, the um, different testimonies. You know, it's kind of like reading the same things. And I'm not like jotting down these clues to try and figure it out myself, you know. Um, A lot of the explanations kind of 
kind of like when he was describing the 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 nail head, how the nail head fell off, and like a lot of these things. Maybe it's just because it's so old. I I didn't quite grasp what these things were. I don't know. So that kind of fell a little flat on me. Um, I feel like the aha moment wasn't like as great as it could have been. You know, I don't know. Anyway, I think what I liked about this was, I mean, I do like the flowery language. I I find it kind of fun to read and and um, speak out loud because I can't talk like this myself. <laughs> Um, I think I did not expect it to be so gruesome. I mean, this was really gross, gruesome, chopped off head. Um, I wonder if this was kind of like, not like taboo or, or like, you know, I wonder if it was like adult oriented. I don't know. Back in the day. Anyway. Um, I think there's better, uh, Poe stories out there and I don't think it's gonna be the last one I read. I had never read this one before and to be honest, I kind of started it and if you can believe this, uh, I kind of got a little bit hooked even though the beginning starts off with a bunch of (laughs) talk about, uh, board games and card games. But anyway, let's just leave it at that. There's better Poe out there, but this was an okay one. And it won't be the last one. In fact, (laughs) you know what? (laughs) The next story is called The Mystery of Marie Roguet. And it's a sequel to The Murders in the Rue Morgue. So I'll bet it has the same characters and they solve another mystery. Now, whether this is going to be the next one we read, I don't know. Yes, I do. It's not going to be. Okay, let's end it at that.